Today's episode is brought to you by MetPro. Hey, do you want to improve your health but not sure where to start? With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is extremely difficult. I know it was for me until I found MetPro. The key is to understanding and mastering your metabolism. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want access to the tools their industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co, that's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. And hey, the Dose listeners will get up to one month free if you sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. More on MetPro later in this episode. On today's episode, Marcus Buckingham. You know, John Paul Sarge said that hell is other people. Well, if you've got a trillion synaptic connections in your brain, then the person you next meet has a trillion different ones. And we know there's a really strong correlation between happiness and awe. And if you can see other people as awe-inspiringly unique, and just have that approach through life, that every, the next person you're gonna shake hands with, it doesn't have to be an empty ritual of hi, hello, nod, nod, shake, shake. It's like, I'm about to bump into a human whose pattern of synaptic connections will never exist again. And from that comes awe. Hey, welcome to The Dose, a show dedicated to deep and engaging conversations, highlighting individuals that are in the pursuit of authentic and courageous leadership who approach life with insatiable curiosity, bold action, and common sense in these divisive and uncommon times. It's my hope you take something away from each and every one of these conversations and apply it to your own life as we all intentionally attempt to become the best we can possibly be by living out our purpose and calling, committing to a life of service, and helping make this place better than we found it. Well, Marcus Buckingham has been on my bucket list almost since the inception of this show. I tried a handful of times, and I can't remember, just kind of went by the wayside, but now here he is. Finally, the universe has aligned, the stars have aligned. He's got a brand new book out there called Love and Work, How to Find What You Love, Love What You Do, and Do It for the Rest of Your Life. I could have been more thrilled to have him come on the show. It's a timely conversation. Marcus, for the past 25 years, has Pretty much been the world's leading researcher into strengths, human performance, and the future of how people work. You're probably familiar with his Strength Finder assessment, which he created and developed along with Donald Clifton. And I remember I came across him a long time ago when I first got in the corporate arena back in 2001, first break all the rules, which came out in 1999. But I've been a fan of him for a long time. And here we're going to talk about how do we get love back into our lives, into our workplaces specifically. It's absent. I've been a huge proponent of this. If you're listening to the show, you know I've been talking about this for a long time. The bottom line, look, we're not engaged at work. Our leaders are depleted. Employees are burned out. Parents are at their breaking point. We were stressed before the pandemic, and now it's afterwards. And so we address all of this. It's a timely conversation with a lot of practical tips, a lot of practical advice. The book is outstanding. I read it in two nights. Well worth the read. You can pre-order it at loveandwork.org. That's love and spelled out, loveandwork.org, and you can pre-order it. comes out April 5th, depending on when you're listening to this. All right, let's get on with this great conversation with Marcus Buckingham here on The Dose. Like I said, I've been a fan of you for a long time. I think First Break All the Rules came out. Like, oh, what year did that come out? Because I think I was reading that in 2001. Was I reading that then? Is that right? Yeah, no, it came out in 1999, actually. Yeah. Just had its, and then we did Now Discover Your Strengths, which was the Strength Finder book yeah. that came out in 2001. So 
those first two books were just uh, a baptism by fire for me in the uh, in the the writing publishing world. Yeah, I've had a lot of people you know, people that join my masterminds. You know, I've had over a lot of people that have gone down the strength finders route. You know, and become certified strength finder. Do they call them coaches? Yeah. Or I mean, you know, they would. Yeah, yeah, yeah. strength finder coaches. Yeah, yeah. It's like twenty five million people have taken it. When we, when you first build it, it's so funny, Richard. You know, that, by the way. Richard, Rich, Richard yeah, like, is fine. Richard's fine. Richard's, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, you know, you um, obviously going way back when my my life's been focused on on psychometrics on how do you measure things about the human being that are really important but you can't count. So you're you're measuring the talents of managers. You're measuring the talents of of leaders. You're measuring engagement. And way back when in 1999, that was that was really a, a brand new. Uh, the whole notion of engagement, employee engagement, was mm-hmm. a brand new thing that didn't exist. And then, of course, the whole notion of focus on your strengths and manage around your weaknesses, which is what are the, I mean, all these managers are really different. But if you look at what they do that's that's distinctive, it is a, a real understanding of strengths as the multiplier of human effectiveness. And if you can figure out what someone's <laughs> natural strength are and multiply it, you're in a, you're in a really good place. At the time, 2001, it was certainly counterintuitive and mm-hmm. it's it's actually really gratifying fast forward 20 years it's almost now so much the conventional wisdom that there are actually people you know pushing back against it as the conventional wisdom which is i suppose a good sign that that you've really moved or shifted the world to think about things a little bit differently which is which is great you know it's a great point i hadn't really thought about it it's crazy when you think about it. that is that was over 20 years ago and you're like holy cow you're right and and a lot of that has become conventional wisdom. And I just remember when I got in the first foray in the corporate arena, like we were talking pre-recording, when I kind of got thrust into the corporate arena and how it was, you're right. And some of those concepts that I find that, that you have embraced and have, and have shared the world with, that's kind of what, and a lot of people didn't realize this, that that's what the world in the Marine Corps was like for me, right? I think a lot of people thought the Marine Corps was this kind of top-heavy you know, mind-numb robots that were following orders from people on high, and it was the exact opposite. There was this, there was this huge push to kind of, you know, play to your strengths or play what, to what you're strong at, you know, and, and, and a lot of leadership from below that I think a lot, of, a lot of people don't see. And it's stuff that when I look at your stuff and what you believe in, kind of the empowerment of the individual, right, is, is kind of what yeah. the blankets, if I look at your umbrella, that's, that's kind of when I think of Marcus Buckingham, it's, it's kind of the empowerment of the, of the individual. Well, yeah, just to riff from what you just said, the funny thing is, is one of the first people to read the book, you know, when you write a book and you're the age that I was, I was obviously six years old when I, in 1999, um, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> right. I, it was uh, General Colin Powell um, had read First Break All the Rules and then called up and it was like, that's like amazing. Um, but he, he was interesting. He said, you know, people think of the military as the same way as that. It's like, uh, there's no individuals and everything's uniform, but he said, you don't put a squad together. You don't put a squad together effectively unless you know the unique qualities of each particular That's member right. of the squad. And they may be trained to do all of the different things on the squad, the sniping or the, or the communications or the munitions. But, but as a squad leader, he said, the very first thing I learned in Vietnam was you got to figure out where people's natural orientation is. Mm-hmm. And then the team becomes the place in which you pull those different people together and, humans have known that for 50,000 years and the team is the place that makes homes for individuals. And he was, he said exactly what you said. It's like the best military leaders are brilliant 
at maximizing the unique and integrating the unique contributions of, of each individual. So it was, that was interesting to hear the, the detail and the vividness of that. And then of course, you know, you said, this is what I believe. I actually don't believe this, Richard. This isn't, um, this isn't a belief system really. It's if you go quantitatively and qualitatively study the best leaders or managers of teams, and you do it through focus groups, you do it through interviews, so you do some qualitative stuff, but then you do it through massive amounts of quantitative research. Um, that's what they do. It, it's not, if I believed it or not, it was almost <laughs> irrelevant. It, it, irrelevant, right? that's like, right. Who, who cares what I think? No one cares what I think. But you actually interview people like you, let's say, or like Colin Powell, and it's like, no, no, this is what we do. That's how you build a highly effective team. And you're right, when you peel the onion 17 ways till Sunday, in the end, what we know biologically, the fundamental fact of the human condition biologically is variation. The sheer number of synaptic connections in the person's brain by the time they get to be 18 and 19 and the, and the synaptic pruning has occurred at, uh, at three and then at 14 again. But by the time you get to be 18, 19, you've got these 100 trillion synaptic connections in your brain, which cause you to love some things and ignore others to be lifted up by some things and to be completely drained by others. And it's so specific that uniqueness is a, you don't have to believe in it or not. Again, it's like a biological fact. That's right. And then the, the question when you have kids or the question when you have a team to run is what do you do with that fact? Do you try to maximize it? Do you try to turn those unique uh, synaptic wirings into contribution and collaboration? Or do you try to build education systems or work systems that basically push conformity right. onto that variation? And yeah, my whole thing for the next 25 years of my life is going to be, we need to engage with the uniqueness of humans. Engage with it. I don't mean pat people on the head and say, jolly well done for being you, but engage with it in a way that helps people own it, not be alienated from it, and then contribute it. We have so much more to do on that front. Yeah, it's the book. it is the book. Love and work is what we're talking about. And you and you open up where you really hooked me from the very beginning, talking about kind of the uniqueness of us as human beings with all those connections. You know, and I love those kind of comparisons. You know, inside my brain, I mean, I basically have how many Milky Way galaxies of connections? I mean, it's it's well, in. It's, you it, do the math. It's it's you have more sin. I mean, this is what we. This is so because we're so busy categorizing people by race or by gender or by introvert, extrovert. We love categorizing. Yeah. This is just easier. But you actually look at your brain, Richard. It's got a hundred trillion synaptic connections, which, if you do the math, is more connections in your brain than there are stars in five thousand Milky Ways. It's crazy, and there will never be anybody again that has the same pattern as you. And yes, the brain is plastic. Yes, you can continue to learn. But we also know that you actually grow more synaptic connections in the areas of your brain. You have the most pre-existing synaptic connections. That's the way that nature works. So in the course of your life, you don't rewire your brain to become another person. You actually become a more defined version of, yeah. your, of yourself. And when you die, Richard, no one will- It's e gone. I mean, it's, it, ah, yeah. You're done. No one will ever be that. It's like you're not replaceable. Well, sorry, in work, yes, you're replaceable. You got laid off after 9-11. You're replaceable. Your head count, mm -hmm. but you're not replicable. 
your head count is replaceable, but you as an individual are not ever anywhere replicable. And I don't think we fully come to grips with that amazingness of no, you. No, but you do a really, yeah, it out. I know. And that's, that's kind of what I was struck with when I was reading the first part of the, when you open up with the book with that and just realizing, and I do, and I, and I know I appreciate the uniqueness of, of human beings and why we're here and just the amazement of the universe and the wonder and all that. But it, it's, it, it kind of humbles you. It, it's a humbling first part of the book to realize like, wow, I am unique. Not that I didn't think I was, but just recentering and realizing, you know, I'm in the third, almost approaching the fourth quarter of my life. And it's kind of like, I I need that kind of jolt. And I wish, you know, if I, I wish I was 21 and getting that kind of jolt, you know what I mean? Because it just seems like you would, and not to look back and regret, but my God, if my kids could just grab onto that kind of uniqueness right now, you know, and they're in their mid twenties to late teens. And I want them to grasp onto this, like you're talking about, this uniqueness of it. Because as you talk about in the book, I see like my four daughters, I see them kind of get, I don't know, I, I guess it's brainwashed or so conditioned, you know, and the stress that they come onto, you know, thinking about they got to get in the right school, thinking that they got to be in the right clubs, thinking they got to be in all this stuff. And, I, and I'm trying, over on the sidelines going, all that stuff is kind of a waste of time, in my opinion. And my wife is kind of pushing back on, well, they got to get in these best schools so they can be. I'm like, are you kidding me? I want them to, to kind of latch on to the love, you know, the love strength that you talk about in this book, you know? Well, it, it, you know, if you look at the, 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 the people that thrive and live the longest, they live on this Japanese island, which I'm blanking mm-hmm. on right now. They're yeah. working at 98. Yeah. The reason they're still alive is they're working at 98. Life is really long. You've got four daughters. And the most beautiful thing about your four daughters is that they are so unbelievably different from one another. That's right. But you go, like, my, I, I have a daughter, 16 years old. I wrote about this in the book. The thing that struck me most is she turns to me and goes, what's the difference between a rhombus and a parallelogram? Because during the lockdown, obviously, every parent turns into a teacher as well. <laughs> right, right. And of course... I don't remember the difference between those two things, but you suddenly realize as you, as you get into it, there's been 10 years of geometry in her life. Somebody somewhere decided, Mm -hmm. A, we're going to devote 10 years to really sort of peeling the onion on geometry. And secondly, kids need to have 10 years of it, which is fine. I don't want to knock that, but, but where's the 10 years about her? Where's the 10 years where she gets to figure out how to use the raw material of her life to demystify the one trillion synaptic connections so that she can uh, go through her life every day, figuring out how to be nourished by what she's doing at work or what she's doing in life, as opposed to being depleted by it. Where's that? Well, that's nowhere. Not only is it not anywhere, Richard, it's your four daughters have absolutely no rigorous academic language or ritual to say, why am I different from my three sisters? Mm Does that mean anything? Your four daughters are told, frankly, that they are who they are because of their gender or because of their socioeconomic upbringing or because of their race or because of their nationality. And that's not nothing. Those things are all important sources of identity. But the real questions they want to ask is, why am I different from my sister? Right. Who's the same bloody race, gender, same gene pool. <laughs> right. And yet whenever it's that whole thing of wherever you go, there you are. So every one of your daughters is going to wake up every day and just be like, it's just me. It's me. How do I have a deep relate? That's why I started off the book with like, we just don't go beyond the introductions to ourselves. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Who's giving us 10 years to help your daughters have a deep 
appreciation of how I use life to demystify myself. Yeah. We don't do any of that. Mm-mm. You know, the, the speaking of that, there, and I read this, I kept reading over and over the part of the book I highlighted. I want to read this because it gets to the meat of everything we're talking about. And I think the essence of the book, for me anyway, and because I, I read this over and over again, and it's it, basically in the middle of the book when you're talking about the seven devils and the groupthink piece. And I've highlighted, I'm just going to quote you from the book there. It says, if you don't learn the language of your loves, as so many of us do not, then you may well find yourself reaching toward broad symbols, as you pointed out, as race and religion, right? To define who you are. And when you do that, you may gain strength from what you share with folks of the same race, the same religion, which makes sense. But if you stop there, you may cut yourself off from the strength that comes from within, which uh, that's just, that blew me away. And I love this. The strength of knowing who you uniquely are where you find love in the world, and how to turn love into contribution. The love strength has more power than group strength. Uh, to me, that's just... That is essentially sums up everything that you're talking about here, and it's a very powerful part of the book. I don't know. that It really struck me. I don't know if anyone's ever told you about but that part of the book really just like, yeah, that made, made, made that tons of so sense. That is so great to hear because it's like, look, I'm a white... I'm a middle-aged white guy, right? Yep. My life experience is is chock full of privilege because of that. And so I can, as I said in the book, I can only write about my own life experience. I can't write about anyone else's experience. It's idiosyncratic. It's got its own ups and its downs. But in general, what we do know about prejudice is that it comes from psychological fragility. Mm -hmm. If you don't know who you are, if you don't know the strength that comes from within, if no one's ever told you how to use life to say what's in there that's cool, not to be narcissistic, but so that you can contribute because love has to flow if you block your loves, but, and your four daughters should, somebody should have told them this, right? If you block your loves, it will burn you up from the inside out. Loves can create you, but our loves unexpressed will destroy you. So who's helping them know that? If you don't know that, you reach forward for people that look and think and smell like you right. and you get your strength from them. And then of course that leads right into prejudice because that's amity within enmity without you get amity within from finding other people to have enmity towards. And we get tribalism. What's going on in flipping Russia right now in Ukraine mm-hmm. is, is to some extent because of geopolitics, but to a great extent, it's because we don't have psychological strength as the priority. Yep. We just don't. And it's so same is true here in the US where we've got a bifurcated country. And yet the really interesting fact of the matter is you got four daughters and they're all weird. Like <laughs> right. in the best sense, right. weird. Right. But they but they don't they don't have a way to access that and contribute that. And school doesn't help. And sometimes parents don't help, is why I talk about in the book too. Parents kind of their own reputations get tied into what college did you get into? Even though we know the college that you get into has zero effect on your well-being or your earning or anything from this point on. It's all external reputational rubbish. And in the world of work, it continues. So we, we, have, a, ah, we have a lot of work to do to help people. I know. And well, that's what, and I think that's why it spoke to me because the thing that's just been driving me crazy, particularly it's been amplified from COVID on is this bifurcation that you're talking about, this kind of divisiveness that is just so second nature. And, and to your point, like if you, you know, group strength, as you point out, banishes others outside the group, right? Like, oh, well, you know, you're MAGA or you're a leftist or you're whatever, you know, and 
But the love strength, as you talk about, that's where it leads. If you know what your love strength is, it leads to this openness, to this curiosity, to these asking these questions, to seeking to understand, to find out what this other person's love strength is, right? And that's when you can start having real conversations with people and you don't put them into boxes. And that's... that's Well, that's why I started off with Donny Fitzpatrick, who was this career counselor in a middle school initially, was doing work with 11 and 12-year-olds and was losing a lot of those 11 and 12-year-olds to to risky teen behavior, cliques, gangs. And his folk, he, he had brought me up actually there to go, can we start trying to figure out what individuals love about what they do as 12 year olds? Could we help them? He had a thing where he gave people a plastic, not plastic box, a cardboard box, and he called it your voice box. Mm-hmm, yeah. And we're gonna spend the year just helping you fill that voice box with like things that you love, really vivid detail about things that you love. Um, and what he saw as an outcome, one of them was that clicks went away, gangs went away. Because now all of a sudden, the person over there who you thought was some First Nations kid who didn't respond or respect you because you were some, I don't know, white Canadian kid, um, he was in Canada. Um, suddenly, no, no, that's a kid who loves playing 12 string guitar, a piece that he wrote by himself for a small group of people. Or that's a, over there, that kid's the one who loves for whatever daft reason backing themselves out of their bedroom because they love the lines that it leans on the floor. And now right. you're, you're over here, you're the person that like, the more specific uh, you get in understanding the detail of what activities for no good reason, other than that you're you, you love, the more curious you are yeah. about yeah. the vivid detail of that and someone else. And lo and behold, suddenly they stop being a First Nations kid that you don't understand, or you stop being some white kid they don't understand, and they become an individual. And not that we should be too idealistic here, Richard. I mean, the, there's always going to be conflict in the world. But if we don't even attend to this, yeah. we shouldn't be surprised when we start categorizing people. Well, it's it's needed more now more than ever, more than ever. And I this everybody feels alienated. I, I for me, it just seems, and I have no data to back this up. This is all anecdotal and me just kind of thinking and observing. But I mean, if you kind of think about when, you know, social media really started ramping up, you know, and you think about the kids that were brought up in 1995, I'm thinking, cause I'm thinking about my kids, right? Born in the mid nineties, nineties. And then we started giving them the phones and everybody, so they don't know life without the phones and the social media and everything else. And it's led to this kind of alienation. And then couple that with COVID where everybody gave them more isolated. Everybody, look, everybody wants to know that they're here, that they were here and that they mattered. And that, I mean, everybody wants that. And I, I think sometimes when we see this kind of division, it's because you don't want to be ostracized from the tribe. I've had some people on the show, biologists, who kind of said that this, this division is rooted in this, our biological need of not wanting to starve from the tribe. Because if we're banished from the tribe, you starve. You know, you can't survive on your own. And so... You you get it's easy to get sucked in a group identity, you know, and if yeah, that's if you although, get your strength if you get your strength from group identity, I mean that to me that's the problem. And so how do we anyway? Sorry, go ahead. You had a thought there. But, well, all I was going to say is the, what's interesting is the solution. If you deep dive into prejudice, you end up with all sorts of understandings about prejudice but what you never find out is what empathy is built out of yeah you don't learn about excellence from studying failure right so you study prejudice you learn a lot about prejudice and you start getting super depressed about the way the world works but if you look at empathy you study empathy you realize that it all begins with curiosity individualization and and funnily enough and i wrote about this in the book too richard which 
um, I think it's in the third section of the book, but the oldest human art we've ever found isn't a handprint in some cave in southern France. It's it's 50,000 year old art in the island of Sulawesi in, in Indonesia. 50,000 years, the oldest human art we've ever found. And it's these images. It's a 15 foot mural. It was only found like two two years ago. Yeah. And it's these these figures that look like humans, but they've all got animal characteristics to them. One has the trunk of a of a giraffe one has the tail of a like a crocodile or something and one has the face of a lion and they're all chasing they've got spears so they're clearly meant to be humans and they're chasing animals like an anoa and a deer and so what this person drew fifty thousand years ago was a hunting scene or a corralling scene and that's that's great but what's cool is that the person drew these animal characteristics on these characters in order to denote something about each one of them that was special right the wile of the crocodile or the strength of the elephant or the braveness of the lion and so fifty thousand years ago somebody went you know what you know how you get to be part of the group well the way you get to be part of a group is that we see you for the unique person that you are and then we build a thing let's call it a what should we call it we'll call it a a team how about we call it a team (laughs) And then we'll pull everyone together and the team, now, of course, we say there's no I in team, as though the point of a team is to remind you of how you are less important than the team. But of course, teams weren't designed for that. Teams were designed to make homes for unique individuals. So we don't have to issue or chase away groups. We know that humans work well in groups, but we should make it explicit that the best groups are called teams and they're made up of incredibly unique and bizarre individuals. And that's why we invented them in the first place. So we don't, we don't have to lose being members of the tribe by you know, ditching our individuality. We can, we can join tribes because we are strong in who we are. And of course, what's great about love, like difference, as I say in the book, is it's an abundant resource. Yeah. My, dif- right? My difference doesn't impinge on your difference. My, my, loves the whatever the detail of those are doesn't doesn't affect you at all it's it's a beautifully abundant way of going through life and it's it's just a crying shame that we don't build businesses this way and we don't of course as you're finding out with your daughters we don't we don't teach this way Mm-mm. we don't graduate knowing this it, it is weird how, how i'm thinking back to i don't know maybe five six years ago i was teaching um group they were with the FAA with the government and um, there's a certain part of my teaching where we talk about love and where leadership is love and I don't know I'd probably taught it maybe 15 20 times before this group about this concept of love and and every time I taught it I get there's always someone that recoil a little bit because I think when they're talking about love they're thinking of the arrow side of love right and I'm talking about the agape side of love or the abundant style of love that you love that you're talking about here in this book and where it's, where it's about adding value coming from a place of abundance there's there's an unlimited supply of it and and to me you know we're all trying to chase and fill these buckets of whatever it is self-esteem pride you know satisfaction purpose but when you go towards it from a loving perspective, all those things that you're, you were chasing directly, they never, the buckets never get full. But if you kind of approach it through full selfless love, then the, your buckets are overflowing, right? I mean, that's an angel. That's biblical stuff there. But, right? I mean, and that's, that's what you're talking about when, and why you're talking about love and work. And so what does that mean? You know, 
because this group recoiled and they said, there's no room. And in fact, this guy, he said, there's no room for love in work. And I was like, what are you talking about? I said, that's, that's what it's all about. That's what's missing in everything. And I think some people just get weird about the word love. And I think you and I, anyway, just kind of your thoughts on what you heard me say there. Well, the, um, it's funny because HBR came to me and said, look, we want you to rehabilitate. the. Uh, we want you to write this book. This book wasn't actually my idea. It was Harvard Business Review coming in and saying, we want you to rehabilitate the word love. Because what we know about when you are in love with someone, weirdly enough, when you're actually in love with someone, which is the eros side of love, um, you have a chemical cocktail in your brain. You have the, the dopamine, oxytocin, vasopressin, it's some com- norepinephrine. There's some combination of chemicals that um, facilitate, well, they think that basically your, your neocortex gets dysregulated and you, and you get what Barbara Fredrickson called, you, you get that broaden and build feeling in your brain rather than the narrow neocortex focused, goal-oriented um, directional approach, egoic. And that kind of gets dysregulated by this chemical cocktail. And it turns out that you do all sorts of things better. You learn faster, you retain better, you do cognitive faster. But when you're in love, we think of love as kind of wild and crazy, but actually it enables you to be smarter. Right. Well, the funny thing is when you're doing activities that you love, when you're deeply involved in something that Mike Chekshin Mahai, as we know, called flow, but, but others have said similar sorts of things. When you get into those moments where you're like, I don't know why, but I keep volunteering for that. And I don't know why, <laughs> but time flies by when I'm doing that. I don't know why, but I seem to pay attention to stuff that other people miss on that. I don't know why, but I got mastery at it, even though mm-hmm. I've never really learned the steps. Whatever those things are, you have the same chemical cocktail in your brain. We can see it. It's biological, which is why love drives learning. Yeah. Which is why love drives creativity, which is why love drives collegiality. It's why love drives innovation. It's also why love drives resilience. So all the things that CEOs say they want in work, resilience, creativity, innovation, collaboration, all of them are only possible if people are finding love in what they do. And you can tell, that's why I start in the book and say, like, when something's made with love, there's love in it, Mm -hmm. it's better. And we can, on the receiving end of it, we can feel it versus the going through the motions. And the biological underpinnings of that, the neurotransmitters and the the chemicals in your brain are real. So anybody that pushes back and says, there's no room, there's there's a whole movement right now in, in, in social media saying, you shouldn't expect work to fulfill what you love. You put in your time, maybe it's five days a week, maybe it's four, but come on, work isn't family, work isn't about you, work isn't an expression of you. It's something to suffer through. You get, it's a transaction, you get your money and then you go home and you buy things for people you love. And there's, look around right now, that's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And the sad thing is that was, that's based on a study of pathology. It's based on a, a, a study of people that are burned out. Yeah. And if you go down that route, work does look like crap. And you're like, mm-hmm. yeah, probably should do less of it. But you look at you, you, you study optimal functioning, you study people that are nourished by their work and excel at their work, whatever their work is, factory work, um, housekeepers, salespeople, physicians, whatever. They have this chemical cocktail in their brain because they've got certain activities in their work that they love. They don't do all that they love. I mean, that's a, that's actually there's no data to support that, but they find the love in what they do. And so anyone going, we're going to build loveless work 
is by definition saying we will also therefore build work with no resilience, no innovation, no creativity, yeah. and no collaboration. Right. And right. actually no one wants that. So it's an interesting, it's like, let's rehabilitate the word love because it maybe for its own sake, Richard, maybe for your kids' sake, but certainly for productivity's sake, loveless excellence is an oxymoron. And we'll be right back after this message. Hey, you're like me, you're wanting to improve your health, but never sure where to start. With thousands of health strategies available, identifying which one works for your body is difficult. I know it has been for me until I found MetPro. According to MetPro, the key to seeing results is mastering your metabolism. At MetPro, your metabolism isn't some mystery. It's a data point. Armed with hard science, MetPro is your health concierge, delivering one-on-one coaching and personalized nutrition and fitness regimes. It's not just about weight loss. MetPro's coaches provide busy professionals, athletes, weekend warriors, and everyone in between the support and education they need to live a healthier life. MetPro's team of experts has worked with the most recognizable name in sports, entertainment, and business. They've helped thousands of individuals like you and me transform their bodies by hacking their metabolism. I've been using MetPro for five weeks, and I couldn't be more thrilled. I finally feel like I got it figured out. This onboarding program was great. The intuitive app I can't say enough of. It helps me plan my meals, gives me a shopping list. I'm eating the foods I enjoy. And most importantly, I got increased energy and I'm seeing weight loss. I couldn't be more thrilled with MetPro. Recently, they launched a new tool that allows you to experience the same science and tailored strategy that their experts use. Look, this isn't food logging. It's not a tool or a workout app. The MetPro app allows you to track, analyze, and learn what your metabolism responds to best. And that's the key. That's the thing I've never had before until now. So if you're looking for a high-touch experience working with a metabolic expert, or if you want to access the tools that industry-leading coaches use, visit metpro.co slash dose. That's metpro.co slash dose to take their assessment and speak with their team to learn which option is best for you. Best of all, listeners will get up to one month free when they sign up. Head to metpro.co slash dose to take advantage of this opportunity. And now back to the show. You know, this isn't just a book about, okay, here's the tactical ways that you can tap into what you're really, that you really love and what you should be doing. And then how do you translate into that to work or a hobby? Because that's kind of the thing too, right? I mean, isn't that, what if I find something that I absolutely love, but I can't pay the rent for it? You know, that's, that's, well, that's still a hobby and the hobby is still value, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the big, that's the big takeaway for all of us on, I mean, there's two big takeaways other than the work stuff that we're talking about and how do you live successfully and build a thriving career. The other two chunks of this, of course, are, and that I'm really trying to address in the book is number one, how do you change your relationship to your own life? Yeah. So many of us think our life is the enemy. We wake up. Mm-hmm. There's a bunch of to do's that we didn't do yesterday. And so you get through the day. That's the language we use. You get through the day or you withstand the day. If we could change our mindset to go, wait a minute, actually, no, every day life's trying to put on a show for you where it's trying to show you what I call threads. Your, your day is a fabric of many different activities, many different situations, many different contexts. Some of them are gray threads, black threads, white threads, not, they don't move the needle very much, a little up, a little down, but some of those activities in a day are red threads. Mm -hmm. They're red. They're, they, you find yourself leaning into them. You find, you you just feel like you have self-efficacy when they're, when you're, when you're doing them, they, they lift you up for no good reason, but they just like, I love it when she does, or when I do such and such, or I love it when, and if you could look at your life that way, your life's trying to show you every day. How about this? How about this? How about this? 
It's like your loves are the clue to that one trillion synaptic connection network. And it's like, wow, what a beautiful thing. Life's showing you stuff that only you know. Now, no one teaches you how to do this, but wouldn't that be great if we flipped our language on that? So that's like the first big thing that we're changing here. And then, of course, the, the second thing is that life isn't about balance. Yeah. You're not, right? You're not, nothing healthy in nature is balanced. Right. Everything's moving. I mean, you're an aviator. You know better than anyone that everything's about angle of attack. Mm -hmm. Everything is. And, and you have to figure out motion. Well, the stars aren't hanging there. They're moving. <laughs> right. Everything in nature that's alive is a motion through an environment, hopefully drawing enough nourishment from the environment to keep moving. Well, you've got one cup. You don't have five. Oh, family, faith, community activism work. Five cups. I got a job. My grandparents, my parents, five cups got to figure out how to balance them. No, you don't. No. You've got one cup that is filled with a thing called love. Now yes. you could call it energy, I guess, or you could call it nutrition or psych, but it's, it's uh, one cup that you can fill from many different domains of your life. And there's no work-life balance because frankly, work is part of life. That's, right. that's, that's just almost immediately wrong. How do you fill your, your one cup with love? Because when you are, you're better. Well, to your point, if you've got some things that you love to do that you can't actually get good enough at, which is true for many of us, to earn a living, well, that's called a hobby and that fills your life with a little bit more love and that's okay. Yeah. That's a good thing. Uh, that is absolutely. A, that is a, that's intentional and that's sensible. Some things you'll get good enough though to practice and practice and the appetite drives the practice. And so love drives practice, drives performance. And lo and behold, you do get good. Like, look, look at you. You're doing done a podcast for 10 years. Well, you know, it, it is interesting. I was, was going to bring that up because I can't tell you how many times, and this kind of maybe speaks to some of the, the, you know, the devils that kind of stop you from, stop you from finding your love strength, right? I can't tell you how many times people have told me, it's like, well, what are you doing this for? Why are you doing this? How are you making money doing this? And I'm like, ah, well, I mean, you know, and I give them some examples and I'm like, but I'm doing it because this is my favorite thing to do. And they're like, oh, I don't understand why you're doing it. I said, because it's my favorite thing I like to do. And they're like, well, how are you going to make money at it? And I'm like, I don't know. I'll figure it out. And I've made money doing it. And I still make money doing it. And I've made more money every year doing it. And it's because I haven't, but I haven't, I didn't get into it to make the money, if that makes sense. I got into it because I love having these conversations. And the more I did it, the more I want to do it. And I know that if I don't do it, I feel like I'm going to shame the universe. That's why I keep doing it because I get, does that make sense? And, and I just. What was that phrase you used? Shame the universe? I feel like if I don't do it, I shame the universe because that, I, because it's, it's laying on me that I have to do this. I mean, I can't articulate yeah. that to anybody. No, the, um, I mean, I don't know what the articles of your faith are, but I believe in God and I believe that we have been blessed with uniqueness. And that uniqueness is manifested through the fact that we love something. It really is manifested at the five foot level. Mm -hmm. it's, it's not like I love challenge. No, no, no. I love challenge in this way with these sorts of people at this time for this reason. I mean, love lives in the detail. Right. And this is the kind of thing we hope to, I try to get into in the book is like, let's, how do you use life to put detail to that which you love? Um, which is so interesting because everyone is like this undiscovered country of uniqueness. Right. And, and we like to say, well, 
you know, she's an extrovert, he's an introvert. And it's like, no, like peel the onion on that, won't you, for a while. But the, um, the, the glorious thing about, about that truth of how unique you are is that you then have to express it. And it's irresponsible not to express it. Now, that doesn't mean it's narcissistic and self-involved. Right. Because that's why it's called love and work. It's like contribution. You're trying to you're add value to your podcast. Yeah. Uh, you're trying to add value. And if in the world the work goes, or the world goes, uh, Richard, I'm sorry, dude, <laughs> it's just not valuable, then that's non-trivial. That's interesting. But it's almost like as I wrote in the book, is like love is for work and work is for love. Mm-hmm. Love is for the expression into something you contribute, which then gives you more raw material to add detail to that which you love, which then adds detail to that which you contribute. If you could wish anything on your four girls, it would be that you would teach them that infinite loop of energy flow where love has to flow, girls. Absolutely. So if one of your girls says, um, hey, I'm uh, I'm just going to pay my dues. I'm just going to start off on this job. I hate the job. But, you know, it gives me good experience. I'll put, the, I'll put that on my resume on LinkedIn. And, and what you would hope to be able to do is say to her, never do that. You never pay your dues for three years. Hate every day. And then imagine you're going to pop out after three years and then find the job that you really fits you. Because you'll be a damaged human yeah. after three years. You're not the same human. So whatever job you take, you might not love all of it. And that's why in the book, I quoted that Mayo Clinic research that mm-hmm. shows it's actually 20% red threads. You don't need to love all that you do. You need to find the love in what you do. And the threshold seems to be somewhere around 20% of your activities in a day should be red threads. So for one of your daughters to go, I'm going to pay my dues, you'd say, well, look, you may be paying your dues, but you better find some red threads Mm -hmm. every day and not one massive red thread once a month because intensity is much less important than frequency when it comes to nourishment. Um, So what you would say to your daughter is, look, I'm not suggesting you're going to find the perfect job, honey, but whatever job you're going to pick, it better have red threads in it and you better be looking for them because otherwise you will be emptied out like a husk. And then you'll be a different human in three years and you'll be damaged again. That's a great way to Marcus saying this. It's like, that's real. That is a great, yeah, this, it is amazing to look at it that way and saying damage, but you you think about all those people we've come across and maybe it's been even ourselves. I I mean, if I think back in my life, there have been a couple of times I've said exactly that Marcus, where I've said, you know, I'll just suck it up here because this is a pathway for me to do this. And it was a waste of time. I can't tell you how many times, when I look at like executive coaching, it's always like I've talked to a handful of people who are lawyers. They were men in their late 30s, early 40s, and they're like, I freaking hate being a lawyer. And I said, well, why did you become a lawyer? It was because I read an article in U.S. News and World Report that this was going to be, you know, that this is going to be the highest paying job in blah, 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 or whatever. Or my dad wanted me, told me I had to do it or whatever. I mean, that's what we're, that's well, what we're we, talking about here. We, we live in a world. I mean, as, as you know, we've got an epidemic of, I don't mean a pandemic of COVID. I mean, we have an epidemic of alienated graduates. Yeah, for sure. Coming out of, right. Coming out of school, Adderall up to the nines. Yeah. Xanaxed up to take the edge off the Adderall. And we're doing it because these kids are graduating. We've assumed that education is outside in 
outside information transfer into you, and then we test you on your attention. That's really what colleges are set up for. It's not really what the working world wants, but that's what we set it up for. You go to the working world, there's a list of competencies in the job description you're supposed to have. We'll do feedback tools. Goodness knows the tyranny of feedback tools that measure you against the model. Mm. And then you... And, and then you're supposed to perfect yourself and become complete against the model. So you can, and as you know, in the federal government, many people who work for the Office of Personal Management, 3 million people, you can't actually get the next job by law unless you can manifest the competencies in the model. And so then we wonder why are so many people on drugs? Yeah. Why are so many people so anxious? We've not, we've hidden people. It's not just they get lost, although they do get lost. We all get lost. It's that we've got education and workplaces that are actively hiding you from you and yeah. telling you, in fact, that the differences between your four daughters aren't real. Yeah. All of the language yeah. on social media for them is not about who are you? How do you describe yourself? How do you intelligently describe the uniqueness of you without bragging? How do you explain who you are to a new team you're joining without self-aggrandizement? How do you do that? That's really important life skill stuff that every company would love. And God knows, I'm sure you love your daughters, but they don't know any of that. They're bloody no, clueless. They don't. They don't know how to learn, how to create, how to build meaningful relationships as much as I've tried with me and my wife, with the social pressures and the way that everything is, how to, how to navigate through those complex social pressures. It's impossible for them. And trust me, yeah. I'm an engaged parent, but I mean, I look at them and I'm like, where, you know, and I, I wish someone would have. Yeah, I think it's more difficult now than it was when you and I were going through it. But I mean, if if I could, if someone was being specific, telling me when I was a teenager or even a young adult when I was in my early twenties how to learn, how to create, how to build positive relationships, none of that was there. It was the ten ten years of geometry. It was the five years of advanced physics or whatever that was most important. But really, what is most important is how do we cultivate who we are in our own distinct voice, our own distinct language and how we can add value to the world right that's what gets gets missed yes and we don't we you know if you take social psychology or psychology or any anthropology classes you might learn about a theory of relationships you might learn about a theory of creativity what you don't learn is how you build relationships and how you are creative and how do you have self-mastery there's no self-mastery classes so you know for your for your girls the challenge frankly particularly for girls is that when you is that we live in a world of comparison yeah. When you go to, you know, you go to, we talk about it in the world of social media, but really it lives in colleges and universities. That's where the fetish for comparison begins. It's your GPA comparison. For which sure. Universities are happy to report to US News and World Report. Then you go to the world of work, you get your performance rating, which is in and of itself a comparison tool. And when you compare, you disappear. So we've built these comparison systems. I mean, right now we're very happy to point to social media as the, as the devil, but the social media is a manifestation of what we tend to do sure. in other places. And yeah. it's comparison, it's comparison upon comparison upon, and, and there's no, there's no inquiry. So in the book, I mean, what I would love to do, frankly, probably my next 10 years of my career is going to focus on sort of 14 to 21 year olds because your daughters, I, I want them to, you know, I wrote this book for them really because <laughs> they're in their twenties and it's like, Hey, the secret to who you are and the strength that comes from the confidence of knowing who you are comes from you 
taking your loves seriously. Yeah. Not do what you love and you'll never have to dare work a day in your life again. That's way too generic. It's what are the specific red threads that you find in your life and how do you weave them into contribution? If I could teach you that, I would help you live a life that's yours. Not to become a lawyer because I my dad told you to be a lawyer or not, not to become a person in finance because that's where you're going to make the six-figure income. If you do that and you don't actually find any red threads in that work, you will be unhappy. Very unhappy. And in the end, you'll be psychologically um, broken. Yep. I mean, you will. And I, I love you. I'm your dad. I don't want mm. you to be broken. Yeah. I want you oh, to be thriving. It's so true. And it, that's what I love about this book is because it gets to the, I love when you talk about the specificity of it, right? Because we, how many books are out there that talk about the kind of the generic broad thing, you know, do what you love and you'll, the money will follow or you'll never work a day in your life, all those kind of cliche things. But it, it, it is, it's a specificity. It's finding the red threads, saying things like you're going to be damaged if you do suck. I mean, if you're doing things that you don't want to do, I mean, that that's how important this is. You get one, you know, we're only here once. So one life. let's, let's make, yeah. the, make the best. And I think embracing, and I've, I, I've got my two older kids particularly have some uh, idiosyncrasies and some weirdness about them that they were, to be quite honest, when they were growing up, were really ashamed of it. And I always told them to embrace, I said, that's what makes you, you know, embrace the kind of uniqueness of it. And one of them has a mild case of Tourette's. And I said, you need to embrace that. That's just who you are, right? You know, she, it wasn't, it wasn't debilitating. It was functional, but it was enough to where that caused a tremendous amount of stress, obviously, as you can imagine, growing up and going through grade school. But yeah. I always tried to tell, I said, just embrace, embrace the, the, the kind of idiosyncrasy of that or the, or the weirdness of that, you know, embrace it. Um, well, we we're so often told to sort of fit in, but really what you want to do actually in the world of work is stand out, yeah. not fit in. I mean, in the book, I talk about the fact, and you, I think you may have known this about me before anyway, but I, I know I grew up with, I didn't have Tourette's. I yeah, just couldn't speak. Yeah. I, I, I had a terrible stammer and I couldn't, my name's Marcus Buckingham. I mean, try saying that name with a stammer <laughs> yeah, in Britain, in a, in, uh, surrounded by boys who couldn't <laughs> wait to find something about you that's yeah, weird. Brutal. And I, I couldn't speak. So, but the detail is, that's why I included this in the book. It's like, if you're not careful, you just focus on your trauma. Yeah. And your whole story becomes your trauma. And then we've all got a battle of the traumas. And if you're not careful, your entire life becomes, you get literally traumatized. I mean, you become your traumas. Right. And it's, it's just, a, and I went to speech pathology to try to fix it. But it, the reason I put that story in the book about speaking I mean, I was cured in one day because I couldn't speak to one person, but for some bizarre reason, and there's nothing in the speech pathology textbooks that talks about this at all. But the only time I could get my synapses to fire was when I was standing in front of 400 people. So I'm, sp I'm reading aloud in chapel. I'm sure it's going to be a disaster. I know my life's going to end, but I stand up there and I, I, mean, I can still remember this, Richard, to this day, looking at the boys and going, and it, it's a feeling it's a it's a feeling in your head and suddenly the the disfluency went away and so the detail for me was oh my word i speaking aloud in front of a group of people i vanish into the moment i didn't know that i had no idea about that but that detail i i can't speak to one person you add 399 more i can 
Okay, that's really interesting. I was reading the New Yorker last week, and they were there's a whole thing on the the um, uh, I can't remember her first name. Uh, the person who wrote Goodnight Moon. Oh yeah, and uh, Brown is her last yeah. name, but her, I can't remember her first name. But Goodnight Moon. And they were talking about the fact that she was a writer. She loved to write, but she didn't love to write. She didn't love to write anything with a plot. It turns out for a while that she was got really depressed because she was like, well, I um, I thought I loved to write, but I every time I have to start writing a plot, I feel like it's stilted and wrong and disjointed. And I can't write anything with a plot, a beginning, a middle, an end. I can't do it. And you could just say, well, you should work on that. That's a weakness. You should work on that. You should work. And instead she wrote, children's books that were all about the words and the rhythm and the sound of the words and and in the end came a plotless book called Goodnight Moon that is a flipping classic because it's so plotless but so vivid yeah, in the things that she right. loved and we like your daughters you know the thing I put in the book about like what why does Venus play te tennis so differently than Serena? Serena yeah where does anyone talk about that why does George Clooney have a sister called Ada, who's not an actress, she's an accountant specializing in payroll, but they both have Rosemary Clooney as the aunt. Well, George says, I was an actor because of Rosemary Clooney. Well, Ada had Rosemary as the aunt. Why are those two so different? How do we help you get into the detail of your, you know, your middle one or your second one who's got Tourette's? It's like, well, that's, that's not a pathology actually. It's just a uniqueness characteristic. Mm -hmm. I had a stammer mm -hmm. and I didn't cure it by trying to fix it. I found something that for whatever after reason I loved mm -hmm. and that became the integrating point for my learning, right. my contribution. And the, the detail of that is so bloody empowering because mm -hmm. it's my detail. And so I think that's why Harvard came to me and said, could you write a book that gets into the detail of that silly word, love? because it gives people agency. Well, that's the key. I love how you just said that. I mean, that 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 was a great word that you just said there. It gives people agency. And I think that just, as I was trying to articulate why this book was so important, and that's it. It gives people, I mean, it, it helps me find my agency. And which is, it's such a vacuum for so many people, which is, leads to a lot of this dysfunction and this chaos that we see everywhere, both in personal lives and in work. For me, that's how I see well, it. Yeah, I mean, I, and I see it obviously in my kids and, and my fiance's kids. And, you know, you, if you're not careful, you can say, well, that kid has social anxiety. Okay, let's send him to social anxiety, fix it school, give him 47 different things he should do to fix social anxiety. And then let's over time characterize you, uh, kid, as a person with social anxiety. And now that's how you see yourself, as opposed to going, when are the times when you feel at ease? When are the times when you actually lean in and love moments of yeah. socializing? When are those? What are those like? I can't tell you. You can tell me the red threads of socializing, yeah. of when you're okay, when you're at your best, when you feel at ease. Let's dive into that, not to pat you on the head, but because that's where you have agency. Yeah. And we don't need to pathologize you. I mean, we live in a society, Richard, as you know, where we are so fascinated. Go into social media and all the psychology posts and uh, accounts, they're all focused on trauma. They they're are. All focused. Mm -hmm. It's We've traumatized everybody. And I'm not suggesting we ignore that. I, I know there are th things that are legit that need to have spotlights shone on them. 
but individual, your kids, mine, they want agency in the world. And that means we got to help them know where they find energy, where they find love themselves. And that's in the detail. Yeah. And if we could help them know the, how to do that in life, they would be better for themselves, undoubtedly. And they would be better, frankly, better contributors at work. Absolutely. I love the book, man. What, what is the one message you hope readers take away from love and work? I mean, what, what is the big thing? I mean, we've talked about a lot here. I mean, there's so much stuff in this book. We barely scratch the surface of what's in there. What, what is the one message that you want, you, you hope people walk away with? I think it might be two things, Richard. The first thing is that you have way more power than you think. Oh, I love that. In fact, 73% of people, by the way, say they have the freedom to maneuver their job to fit their, themselves better. Only 18% of us do, but many of us feel like we have that freedom. Um, this book's trying to give you the, um, the instruction manual almost for how to use that freedom. You have power to draw strength from life. You have power to find your own red threads. In fact, no one can tell you what yours are better than you. And life is trying to show you every day. So you have power. And the second thing is sort of where I ended the book with, which is, you know, John Paul Sarge said that hell is other people. Well, if you've got a trillion synaptic connections in your brain, then the person you next meet has a trillion different ones. And we know there's a really strong correlation between happiness and awe. And if you can see other people as awe-inspiringly unique, and just have that approach through life. That every, the next person you're going to shake hands with, it doesn't have to be an empty ritual of hi, hello, nod, nod, shake, shake. It's like, I'm about to bump into a human whose pattern of synaptic connections will never exist again. And from that comes awe. Oh, uh, and, and what a beautiful way to go through. I'm not saying people won't annoy you, and there'll be some people that you don't click with, and people are complicated, and chemistry's chemistry, and okay. But if people can take from this book that, other people are mind-blowingly distinctive and unique and awe-inspiringly so, then your whole relationship to everyone you bump into changes in some meaningful way. Not to be too idealistic, but what a great way to change your mindset to everyone that you encounter. They are not a category of one sorry they're not a category they're only a category of one mm -hmm. and you'll never really see that if you approach them with a ritualistic nod nod shake shake instead of a wow you're a galaxy mm -hmm. I that i haven't that. got to know yet i absolutely love that that's beautiful i love you know you're right you, you, you look at something with awe, it can lead to, to, to happiness, to fulfillment, to curiosity, to wonder, all the stuff that we need. The book yes. is Love Plus Work. Comes Actually, out, it's Love and Work. Oh, Love I and Work. Sorry, they put it. Put love love, love and, and Work. work. Yeah. Comes out April 5th. Uh, can people pre-order it now, I'm assuming? Or... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, just quickly, they, they can pre-order it now. We've worked with closely with, I don't know when we're going to come out with this podcast, Richard, but We've worked with uh, HBR, Harvard Business Review, to create a Love and Work Leader series. Oh, so cool. if you do pre-order the book from anywhere, then you get access to, we've done uh, a six-part leader series, which gives you a Love and Work Leader designation 
just send us the receipt of the pre-order and it's six hours of, I mean, not to overwhelm you, but an hour apiece on the leader in you, on love and work teams, on love and work career, love and work relationships. There are lecture notes there. There are um, activities, there's quizzes to test your competency. And so this is our attempt to take this whole subject really seriously beyond beyond a book. I mean, a book is fine and great, but what we're really trying to do is create a whole cadre of people with shared understandings about this. And so if you go to loveandwork.org, you can find all of this stuff. And Harvard's been so great around giving access to all of their people and the seriousness with which they take things. So if you pre-order, you get access to all of this. And we're going to keep it after the, after the book comes out too, so that this isn't a book. It's an ecosystem of, 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 of learning because there's so much that we could all do together. I love it. Loveandwork.org. Where else can people reach out to you, Marcus, as we wrap up here? The only other place that I muck around on really is Instagram. So we put a lot of learning on there. And that's kind of the thing that I think is most fun from a social media standpoint. So if you go to loveandwork.org, you'll find all that stuff. And you go to Instagram, you'll find um, my dog. No, you'll find learning (laughs) and, and other things that might be simpler to consume. Well, I have links to all this in the show notes. Marcus, what an honor to have you on my show. This has been such a, a fun. I know I'm a better person for spending this hour with you. So thank you for coming on the show. Well, it's my pleasure, Rich. It really is. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into the show. I hope you got some value out of this episode. If you did, please do me a huge favor. Tell somebody about this show. Tell your spouse. Tell your kids. Tell your coworkers. Let them know about the value that Dose of Leadership brings to your world. Go to doseofleadership.com. You can learn more about my services. If you're looking for somebody to speak, teach, or coach about leadership, I'm your guy. I'm known for my ability to transform individuals and organizations, teaching them the concept of creating a culture of decentralized leadership. I do think that is the secret sauce to facing all the challenges that we face today. Thanks so much for tuning into the show. I look forward to the next time we're together. And until the meantime, make it a great one.